What a, what a blessing it is to be with you, those who are with us here in person, those who are also here with us online. I'm Pastor Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, the pastor of member care and counseling. I uh, continue to pray for Pastor Jason and his family as he's just got a few more days where, uh, where he's going to be out from uh, just being diagnosed with COVID and then coming back and getting some things done that God wants him to do. But we're, we're thankful for them. And uh, so just continue to pray for their family as well. Well, I'll tell you, there could not be uh, uh, a more important topic, I believe, on this day today than the issue of the sanctity of life. If you think of, about all of the atrocities and all of the uh, instances in our world that we would look out on our culture and the cultures that preceded us and say, something is very despicable, it would be this subject of the murder of infants. Of all the things that, that you could even contemplate and imagine, you would never think that a culture could come to a point where they could, they could wholesale look at the, at the human life that God has so intricately designed and, and use it in a way as if it can be discarded as a piece of tissue. I'll tell you, on January 13, 1984, President Ronald Reagan issued a proclamation designating January 22nd as the first National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And ever since that particular moment, every third Sunday in the month of January, uh, reflecting the January 22nd, 1973 decision by the Supreme Courts to legalize Uh, abortion on demand in all 50 states, Sanctity of Life Sunday, has now continued to roll on and on to remind us of the value that God places on life. And when we think uh, about even our culture and we see all the things that are going on, it reminds us of how precious life is, whether it's life at the very beginning or life all throughout. God holds and values all of these particular elements as valuable in his sight. I'm reminded of a Isaiah 49.1 when we think about this in the, in the text of Scripture. Uh, you can turn to some of these if you desire, but you can also just look for these on your own. And here's what Isaiah says. He says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. This is a remarkable text when you think about it in the life of the prophetic ministry of Isaiah. That from the very moment of inception or conception, he, God, planned all his days and, and now gave him a function in which he would serve. That is no different for you and I today. That, is no, that, that has not changed from the living God's presentation in our own particular lives. He desires for us uh, to, to be understanding of who he is and, and what he does. And what I would challenge you with as we walk through the text of Psalm 139, we get this small snapshot in the midst of, of David's uh, exaltation of God about the value and the perplexity and the extraordinary uh, perspective of life. And yet with the psalmist, it's not the only thing that he's doing. I want to walk you through the psalm so that you can understand why does he insert something like, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We could park on that text alone 
and simply grab all kinds of spiritual truths uh, that would enrich our soul. But I think seeing it within the larger context of the psalm uh, will, will help us realize why David would gravitate towards these kinds of things. And, and what, he, what he really desires for us uh, as believers is he really wants us to make sure that when we think about our lives, that we are people who desire to know God and to be known by our God. You know, you, you should wake up and go through your Christian life saying, you know what? I want to be known by him. I mean, he has done this special privilege to send his own precious son so that you and I could go ahead and call him Abba, Father. He does that for every one of these unborn children. Well, I think as the psalmist goes, as, as you will see in the text before us today and have already seen uh, through the scripture reading, that he really, he calls out to God, calling God to say, search me and know me. You see him kind of bookend this psalm. God, I want, you've searched me, you've known me. And at the end of the psalm, he says, God, I want you to search me and know me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Well, the psalmist, very interesting in, in enough, has, has, has a particular predicament in mind that's going on. We don't know exactly what that is, but what it appears to be in the text, if, if, as we will see, is someone is against the psalmist. Someone is attacking the psalmist, both with words, both with uh, trying to, to kill him. There's something going on. We don't know exactly the scenario. There's a lot of contemplation by different commentaries and individual theologians as to what that could be, but most leave it to say he's being attacked of some sort. But you remember in the psalmist's perspective, when you attack the king of Israel, it is as if you are attacking the one who put him there. And so David, in the midst of this personal anguish and animosity from the attacks without and the anguish within, he, he begins to start meditating and reflecting on what's going on. And if we, could, if we could even break down the psalm a little bit more, what you would see, if we could br- break it into three particular parts, is you'll see that the psalmist has a declaration in Psalm 39, and We're going to unfold that. I'm going to speed through certain parts and park on other parts. But then he gives the psalmist deliberation. And then at the very end, he gives the psalmist desire. This is the search me and know me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Now, I love this because at the very beginning, he, he starts off this text, and you notice he starts to express in his own uh, enemies from without and anguish from within, he starts to meditate on this. I perhaps think we often do the same thing. We, thing. we, we, we take this personal perspective in our own life. When, when something hurts and something's painful and I don't have any control, do you notice that the Christian community and Christian brothers and sisters begin to start saying, but God does this. And God is like that. And he sustains us. And he loves us. Well, the psalmist begins in this psalm by saying, God knows me. What he's saying is, God knows my enemies from without and my anguish from within. You know, I don't know what you come with this morning. There's so much heartache and pain and suffering that exists within a world of sin. Everyone ends up experiencing a level or degree of suffering at any one particular time or another 
whether it be from the impact of a a loved one having an illness, whether it be as we even reflect on a day like today of the sanctity of life, and, and we think, you know what, how many people, even in our own congregation, have lost a child prematurely? And reflect back on those particular moments saying, oh Lord, I would have wanted to know them. And yet that child now is known by Him. He is known by God and He is continuing to be known by Him. I mean, what a precious thought to think if you are here this morning and you have lost a a, a child previous to when you actually be able to hold them in your arms and you reflect on that and you you can say to yourself confidently as David said, I cannot go to them or he cannot come to me but I will one day go to them. You have that precious promise, moms and dads who have been put in that circumstance by the sovereign hand of God to draw you, and he knows you. Notice the psalmist, you know me when I sit down, when I rise up, and you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Do you notice what he's starting to do? He says, God, you have such An incredible analysis of my life. There is not one single detail that is left out. I always think about it when somebody sends me some kind of a Word document and they use that function where they can use the down arrow where everything else that they really want to say is below it. It's like God clicks on it and says, I got all the information of you. There's nothing that you, have, that, that you could ever leave out. I know your activity. Do you realize this morning, the moment you opened your eyes and even while you slept, the God of heaven, of, of, the God of heaven and earth was watching over your soul, was watching over every one of your children. I remember so often as a, as a young father and, and, and just enjoying the, uh, the, the children and, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you put that little baby in their crib and, and, you know, you hear them breathing and all of a sudden you're like, you hear them over the monitor. Did they stop? Did they, what, what happened? Like, you run in there quick. You look over. Like, you see the blanket. Okay, it's good. Everything's all right. I can sleep now. Maybe, maybe like an hour or two later, you, you're like, well, they haven't moved in a while. You run back in and you do the same thing. Why is that? Because there's something precious about knowing that little child. Think of the way the Father in heaven looks at you and I. There's something precious about us. That he comes to our aid and comes to our rescue and says, I want to know you and I have known you. I know your activity. You notice in verse 2, I know your thoughts. I know your desires and your motives. Do you realize that you all, every one of us, we all come with a level of desire? Where we say, God, I just wish you would. And then we fill in the blank. God knows that. He knows it before the psalmist says, before the word even gets on your tongue. He says he knows it all together. How is that? Because he knows the heart that develops the communication that then brings the exaltation to the living God. He knows us. But the psalmist doesn't just stop there. You notice he he starts to become really animated about God's knowledge of him. And then he, he can't stop until he says something like this in the psalm, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I can't attain it. Have you ever felt like that? As you're reading the Bible, 
and you're reflecting on the very person of God, and you begin to say, this knowledge is so extraordinary. The living God's activity and knowledge of me is far beyond what I could ever imagine. What does that allow him to do? It allows him to know all of our activities, all of our thoughts, all of our desires, and it allows us to rest in him. You you don't have a single moment or ever have in your entire life in which God has not been with you. There's never a moment where he has taken a break, fallen asleep, and drifted off into slumber while some major activity or circumstance or illness or loved one circumstances that brought heartache to your soul, he was always an active participant wanting to guide you, to love you, I can remember this perspective of wanting to just making sure that I was known. Remember when my when my daughter was diagnosed with her uh, brain tumor, and I remember when the doctors took her away from us. It was probably one of the most difficult moments of my of my parenting life. Knowing, preparing, thinking about it, being in the room, watching all the little. Uh, stickers being placed on her head, knowing that, that the next day when we woke up, at some point, they were, they were going to take her from me. And I remember sitting in that waiting room. I remember my wife and I sitting in there. And the doctor comes, and they're so gracious when they're, when they're taking care of your children. And they give her an IV that starts the little bit of loopiness so that she doesn't realize what's going on. And I can just remember sitting there with her in my lap thinking, I just don't want you to take her from me. Because I could only think about in my own mind, if, if something happens as they do this surgery on her brain and they remove a particular portion of it, will she know me when she awakes from the, from the ICU unit? Will she know me? I remember when they called us in after the surgery was over, after hours, and I could see her, her head filled with, with gauze and wrapping, just waiting, deliberating, thinking, will she know me? I all swollen, black and blue, half face, and all of a sudden, it started to wear off, and one eye popped open. And she turned her head, and she said, Dad, I'll tell you, I could have just broke at that moment. Because I wondered, would she know who I was? Would she recognize my name? I'll tell you what, this is the God of heaven who when we are are energized by the work of his spirit through repentance and faith, you know him and guess what? He knows you. There will be a moment of, of, of celebration when so many parents who have, who have had circumstances where they have lost, lost a loved one and we will get to heaven one day and in those gates of heaven, you will be reunited with people, that, with, with loved ones that you cared for that you have yet to meet. We have a God in heaven who, whose knowledge is so wonderful, it's so high, we can't even attain to it. There's something special Believers, about him knowing you. Isn't there? 
Now, we, we know this because there's an opposite perspective. And if you're here, and, and I would just speak to you for a moment if you're here and online, and you do not know God, you are in danger of eternal separation forever in hell. Notice what Matthew chapter 7, uh, uh, verse uh, 21 to 23 says. It, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I can't even begin to make each and every one of us aware of how significant it is to help others come to hear the gospel truth and allow the Spirit of God to move so that they are known by Him. Don't forget that a Sanctity of Life Sunday is not just about the reality that God hates the murdering acts of so many people who just haphazardly take the life of what God has created. But he loves all life and all people in every stage of life, every day of their life. That means every unbelieving individual, God wants to know them. He's done such an incredible work through the Son, Jesus Christ, by sending him on your behalf. If you are here this morning and you say, I do not want to know him, Do you realize there are Christian people that come to the conclusion that they do not want to know Him? They refuse to accept Him for who He is. The knowledge of God that we express is too high and wonderful for us. They view with disdain. And they mock it. And that's what David was experiencing. People who would look at the very things of God and say, you know what, I do not care. He says, you know what? God's knowledge is incredible for me, but he continues to move on. He said, but God's presence is with me. Do you notice this? I love this passage. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? And then he starts asking all these rhetorical questions. If I send it into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is just the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. You notice David's intentional effort to guide his own soul and and counsel himself well to say, "God, God, no matter where I go, when I awake, no matter what circumstances arise, you are there leading me on. You will never get outside of God's perfect will for you. Because God loves you and he cares for you. I love how he expresses these particular essence because in the midst of anguish, we begin to ask questions like this. God, will you be with me when people abandon me? And in David's case, when the kingdom is all of a sudden, I'm wondering to myself, what's going to happen to it? Men are after me. They're after my death. They would love to see the downfall of the kingdom of Israel. And David then says, God, you are with me no matter where I go, no matter what time during the kingdom, you are there. Now notice, he immediately shifts from God's knowledge of him, which we can infer God's knowledge of the psalmist is the same as God's knowledge of us, to God's presence with him and his presence with us, 
to God's powerful design of us. I love this. He says as, as he walks through this particular passage, now he parks on one of the most intricately designed passages to express God is the designer of all life. I don't know how a person who is a Christian could ever get done with a passage like this and then say, it's just tissue. Like I almost hate it when people say, a fetus. It's not a fetus, it's a person. It's a child. It's God's created design. The psalmist wanted to express this, and he, he so uh, d- began to start saying things like this, For you formed my inward parts, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. I love how the psalmist displays God's incredible design in the life of humanity and all who bear his image. I mean, you get the picture of everything that you've ever seen when, when you talk about the, the, the growth process of the baby in the womb. I mean, don't you just love being able to see those little pictures and all of a sudden you see those little fingers form? You just see, you know, I, I was so, so often remembered when uh, my wife was pregnant with all my kids and all of a sudden we'd be laying there at night in the bed and all of a sudden it was like, <laughs> like what's going on with you? <laughs> and then it, it's like, there's life in there. It's God's child in there. It's God's created act of his holy, divine sovereignty that all of a sudden enveloped itself in this person that will come out. And don't you remember it, moms and dads? The first time you had that baby and all of a sudden they were crying and uh, you know they, they took him away and the doctor, they're crying with the doctor and all of a sudden they set him on your, your wife's stomach and all of a sudden they heard your voices and it was like a calmness to their soul. Do you realize that's what the word of God is supposed to be to you and I? That when we're in anguish, both from without and from within, that all of a sudden when we hear the words of our Father in heaven, all of a sudden we might be in despair or anguish or animosity or anxiety or discouragement, but we hear those words and all of a sudden our eyes are open. I can remember saying something, and I know that she didn't even understand me yet with all my kids, but they're sitting in that little sink where you're giving them the wash, and they're just staring at you. And you're staring at them, and you just can't take your eyes off. The despicable nature of what's going on in the culture today is that when we remind ourselves of those beautiful uniting moments that someone would take a similar moment and remove it and extinguish a life in a created image bearer of God. The psalmist says, it was you that formed my inward parts. You, you were the one that created me. And I'm yours. In fact, what he, what he begins to, what he's trying to say to us is there's something awe-inspiring about the birth of a little child. I don't know any father or mother that has experienced that in the hospital and, walked, and, and, and haven't come out going, that is remarkable. That is because God, even in the moment of time in that hospital room, wants you to know something about him. He has carefully put us together. This is why he uses the word, you knit me, you wove me together. Because all the times that this particular word is used is is often in the book of Exodus when he's talking about the intricacies of the woven elements of the tabernacle. And now the psalmist, David, picks up on this and he says, it is if the very Father in heaven stitched you together 
one string at a time. And you see it. It's remarkable. But the atrocities of which we experience today, I thought some of these statistics were just alarming. Coming from the All-American Life League and statistics, even 2017, all the way up to 18, 61.8 million plus deaths, abortions, murders, in the world since 1973 when this particular decision by the Supreme Court took place. Abortions per day, 2,362 plus, 98 plus per hour, 96 per second. I just reflect on that for a moment. How many happened just from the time that I began speaking? People in our world are seeing fit on every level to redefine what God has designed in such a way that they can, from their own humanistic viewpoint, declare in their own mind so they can justify it, they can discard life. If you can discard this life at this stage, what can't you discard? At this particular point, if we don't have a solid foundation and appreciation for God's life, I'll tell you, we can be caught up and thinking that all the wrong things are all right. And our culture, not being able to see what God has designed, unwilling to embrace God's sovereign act of design, they easily discard life and easily justify it. I can remember when the YouTube videos came out uh, not too many years ago of various elements of, of this process. And I remember just seeing a small portion, and I just I couldn't even watch anymore. Because I think, how could somebody do something like this? And then walk away and go sleep at night. I I, I don't even understand. I can't even contemplate it. But the reality is, is that for these, these children, without a voice to be able to speak for themselves, we together as a body and as a collective Christian community must speak for them. And that's what sanctity of life is all about. Is that you and I don't forget how precious, how valuable, how short, our life really is. He says, I created you. And then he begins to continue this pattern and he says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it well. What he's really saying to us here is he distinguished us. The words that he's starting to use uh, in the Hebrew language talks about God's extraordinary act. That when he looks at you and he looks at your children, Don't forget that he's still looking at your children like that even when you're frustrated with them. And when they're doing disobedient, naughty things as a child. This is still God's child. And he said, this child, and David recognizes this about himself, that he distinguished me. I became an extraordinary element of God's design. He says, extraordinary is the product, in in a sense, of your creative act is what the psalmist declares, and my soul knows it well. It just makes me reflect as we think about these particular words. Don't you think this is what David was doing in Psalm chapter 8? I love so frequently in the Psalms how David has to just stop and remind himself with all the things going on, and no doubt as a king of Israel, there was all kinds of things happening all the time. And yet at moments in his life, he stepped back, and in Psalm 8, It's so remarkable that he begins to say things like, I look up at the stars of heaven and I look at all the things that you've created. And then I ask myself this question, what is man? 
who is he that you care for him? And the son of man that you love him? This God of the universe knows each one of us by name. He knows all the children who have been born and the children who have been unborn as a result uh, and not been born or their life has been extinguished. And yet God just doesn't know what happened, believers. But because of the wickedness of men, God shows the grace of God as he always does. And now he knows them in heaven. Oh, this is such a beautiful thing. You know what? Here's one thing I am sure of. 61.8 million plus people already reside in heaven. Which means 61.8 million plus people are already waiting there for us, having experienced the majesty of the living God I mean, what will it be like for you as a parent who have yet seen your child and then they see you and somehow you know each other and they say, let me show you a few things around here. I've been enjoying this for a long time, but I want you to see what I've been living like. And I know you've been afraid and I know that it was this, but I was taken care of by the hand of the living God. And what people meant for evil, God and his grace allowed mercy to be shown and welcomed me and me into this beautiful place. Is that not a picture of the very redemptive act of a caring and loving God? We don't, we don't belong there. We, we get to belong there. It's a privilege for us. And then he begins, continues this and says, My frame, it was, not, it, it was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths. You designed me. What this demonstrates in the life of the individual. Believer, you are the created, creative work of God. A person who would bore his image. You know, God cares about life of all stages, both in its infancy and from conception all the way to fully mature adults until later on in life. The reason why the sanctity of life has become such an incredible facet and I hope fabric of the Christian community is because if you can do this at the early stages of life, then what's at stake in the latter stages of life? Where we can say we care here, but we have to carry that care all the way through to the end. So many people look at this awe-inspiring perspective of the hand of the living God and this created act of a child. And they are met with disdain. But I can tell you some of the most incredible moments where you see these children that God loves. These children, no, no matter if they are born with various ailments or in, uh, different, difficult illnesses, they are value, whether they are born with cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, and you can name whatever other ailment, they are all valuable in God's hand. Oh, there could be no, much greater, no greater thing, I think, as part of my Christmas vacation when I get to see one of, my, one of my little nephews who was born with cerebral palsy who can't speak. And we have some of the most hilarious, majestic times And as soon as I walk in and he comes in, he says. And I look and we just laugh. He knows what I'm saying even though he cannot communicate back. That life is precious in God's sight. 
But guess what? So often we, we don't just get duped at the early stages of life to thinking of the value and the creative work of God. We often miss it later on when we get, we get so consumed with what the culture says about our image and what is actually beautiful. That so many adults and so many young people living in such an image-based culture begin to assess themselves. And I really honestly feel bad for, for, for guys and for ladies growing up in a culture like this because the idea of beauty and the standard of what seems to be good is if you have a good-looking outside. Who cares what's going on on the inside? Guess what? All of us have to pay attention to the beauty that God has allowed to develop within because of the work of the Spirit of God. Moms and dads, please do not express upon your young children so a, a greater value of polishing up the outside. Oh, I have often heard parents in, in such terrible ways say, well, you know, you, maybe you should just put on makeup and maybe guys would notice you. Or maybe if you would, you know, do this, then they would notice you. Instead of saying, you're beautiful from within. Beauty is what God is doing on the inside when the spirit-filled believer acts consistently, consistently with the living God. Yes, I know what it's like living in a culture like this, growing up myself in a culture like this, being infatuated. I can remember at 16 years old when it's like you finally hit the weight room, you know. I remember walking by my parents' uh, you know, big mirror, like, oh, yeah, like, oh, ooh, hey, what's happening here? And I look back with disdain so often on moments of my life where I was so keenly aware of what I looked like on the outside with not a, even a perspective of what was going on on the inside. Believers today, being, created, being creative acts of the living God who bear his image, the image is not entirely just what your outside looks like. The image that he has created is accompanied by how you think, the affections you have for the living God, by the choices that you make. I am less concerned about whether this is polished or that's polished or you're chiseled with this or you're working out or you have this body of the incredible elite athlete. Guess what? Our culture is inundating our young people with that, that ideology. But the living God wants to tell you your image is far more than what's external. It's valuable. That's why Paul says the, that bodily exercise profits little, but godliness profits much. Be attentive to what's going on the inside far more uh, than what's going on the outside. He continues in this and he says, Your eyes, the Lord, your eyes even saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written from every one of them the days that were formed for me when yet there was none which means he sustains us. Our God has numbered each of our days, just like he knows these little children in the womb, but at the moment of conception, God has already designed, decided in his mind, here's the span of their life, and I will sustain them all from beginning to end. Believer, I don't know what you're working through today, but you have a God who cares about what the anguish that you experience from outside of you. But he sees the anguish that's going on from within you for various circumstances. And he knows you. His presence is with you. How does he know you so well? Because he made you. He formed you. 
He framed you up, the, the Hebrew language. He, he designed your bones. The word for frame is just the word for bones in the Hebrew. He put your skeletal system together. And he gave you the body type he gave you. So how dare we say, well, let's, I just wish I had a different one. He made that. God wants us to appreciate what he's doing. Again, he has to stop, stop in the midst of all of this. Uh, and, and he says to himself, how precious are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they're, they're, they are more than the sand, and I would awake, and I would still be with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. Now notice, he's using all of his theology now to counsel himself. God's knowledge of him, his presence with him, his formative acts of creation with him to say, I know you, I know your circumstances, I know your ways. And now he explodes into this. Now this is not what you would imagine. Oh God, slay the wicked. Do you notice something about this? God is, David is not concocting, concocting a plan to figure out how to kill the people who want to kill him. We don't, as Christians, concoct a plan to destroy people who destroy life. But what do we do? We ask the living God who has formed these little ones in their womb, God, please deal with those who in wicked way, in murderous ways, take the life of what you have created. God, you alone have the timing and the power and the presence in all the universe, and you care enough to be able to deal with all of these things. But that doesn't mean that we go silent, we, we pray. We pray for the life of people right now who are contemplating whether when they saw that ultrasound, whether they would keep the child or discard the child. It's happening right now. David, in his particular expression, continues, and he says, Slay the wicked, Lord. Their malicious intent is against you. They plot against you. They are lifted up, in a sense, as he continued. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. This is the idea. They're lifted up with pride. They look at the life and they go, I don't care. And they even shake their fist in God's face. And then David says this in, in verse 21 as he deliberates this particular perspective. Notice, he goes from declaration to now deliberation. God, would you do this on their behalf? Would you do this on my behalf? God, deal with the people who hate you and hate your ways. And then he starts to inwardly reflect in verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred and I count them my enemies. Here's what he's saying. God, I hate what you hate. And I hate, when you have an enemy, I hate, I hate that. They're my enemy. Whatever enemy is yours is mine. Whatever you hate, I hate. And let me tell you this. So often we can, we, can, we can experience a life of a sanctity of life Sunday and express the value of God's created act in the image-bearing capacities of a child. And we forget that so often in the culture, this rose out of a culture that was infatuated with sexual promiscuity. 
I mean, why did, why did abortion ever have to be decided in Roe v. Wade if there wasn't a scenario where people who believed that they were missing out and wanting to try out uh, things that, that God said was only to be bracketed in the time of marriage, when sexual promiscuity is rampant, there is something that has to be taken care of, and this is what befell our country and our time period is that I know because I made a bad decision, then I can make another bad decision and take the life of another person. Al Mohler in his book, We Cannot Be Silent, expresses a reality that the culture that has been permeated that we live in now, that abortion was a part of a larger picture when sexual promiscuity became, became rampant, abortion became prevalent. How often in the Christian community do we not, do, do we, we also have to be against the other things that are horrible? I mean, we have to warn our young people as they're getting into relationships. Don't live together. Don't tempt what God is doing. God didn't put this time frame for you to, to mess around with various things. Often we don't talk enough about the level of sexual promiscuity that goes on even in our midst. And you're mistaken, Christians, by the way, if you believe that you haven't been around somebody who has either had an abortion or is contemplating an abortion. Because it happens even within Christian community. And people are often so silent. I see this in the counseling room where finally someone says, I'd never told this to anybody else, but I've had two or three abortions. And they've been living with the pressure of the decision ever since. But guys, we got to stop and be against sexual promiscuity and godless living in a way that it doesn't permeate a culture that, that we're not just against this, we're against all of what God hates. And all the things that produce these kind of lifestyles. At the very end, he says, he says these things. As he walks through in verse 23, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is both the desire and plea of the psalmist, but it was a plea not only for God continue to know me, it was a plea of vindication. He stood before the living God and said, I hate what you hate. Your enemies are my enemies. You're with me. You've designed me. Your presence is here. Your knowledge of me. You know what he's saying? God, search and analyze everything that I think about who you hate because I hate them too and make sure that I don't hate them for the wrong reason. What is what this says to me when we think about sanctity of life? Sunday is that we can't hate people who are performing all kinds of wicked, murderous acts of abortion. But we must pray that God would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, that they might value the, the very creative hand of a God who knows them, whose presence is with them, who formed them, so that they would see that Jesus Christ was sent to them. So that they would say, God, try me, the psalmist says, Know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. And notice this very last section. And lead me in the way everlasting. Is that your plea? Even as a believer this morning? That God would search your heart with such depths that you, you can honestly stand before him this morning and say, God, what you hate, I hate. What you love, 
I love. Your enemies are my enemies. Whatever I can do for you, God, search me. I don't want any wicked way in me. Why? Because I want you to lead me in the way everlasting. How are we led? We're led by his word, by his truth. When we hear the words of a loving father, much like this child who hears the parent's voice for the first time after they've come out of the womb, they comfort us and we see them, we hear them. They ring in our ears and we say, God, wow, you are extraordinary. You made me in such a way that I stand back in awe of you and I will, till my dying breath, defend what you love in the culture that I live in. Sanctity of Life Sunday, guys, is so important for us to remind ourselves the value that God places on life. Your life is valuable. As we, as we reflect on these things together, I think it really really just encourage us to remind ourselves, are we praying this prayer? We need to pray it. God, search me, know me, try me. Help me see if there's any wicked way in me. We are often blinded people, by the way. We think so much of what we do is good, but often we don't see our own heart and the motive that we do it with. But your God sees it. He knows your thoughts. He knows your activities. He knows your motivations. Don't let there be any grievous way in you so that you will be continually led in the way of everlasting life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you.